You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When Vanessa and I bought our house on Shepherd Street, we had all kind of vision for what our house could become with some renovations. And a few years into owning our home, we had a contractor friend come over to our house and take a look at some of the changes that we were trying to make. And when he came to our house, we showed him around and we started to lay out some of the ideas that we had. And at the time, we were thinking about an open concept. Any HGTV watchers out there, all right? We were were thinking about an open concept instead of all these separate rooms. We wanted to knock down some walls and create an open concept. But when our contractor took a closer look, he said, hey, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to do that. And I said, why not? And he walked over to this one particular wall, and he knocked on it. And he said, this is a load-bearing wall. If you knock down a load-bearing wall, it compromises the structural integrity of the whole house. Pretty soon, you will have sagging ceilings, creaking floors, drywall cracks, and sticking doors. And he said, ultimately, your whole house will slowly fall down. If we're paying attention to what's happening in our society, we can see that many people have a vision for renovating our society. There are structural realities in our society that we don't want to live with. And so, Americans have gone to work on making changes. However, what many people fail to realize is that we have knocked down a load-bearing wall in the house of America. The ethic of life is a load-bearing wall, not only of the Christian faith, but of any society. And by knocking down this wall, the entire house has been affected. We have created structural problems in American society. Now, Americans make fantastic claims to greatness, and yet we see the sagging ceiling of violence pervading our society. We are the richest nation on the planet, and yet we can hear the creaking voices of nearly 40 million poor neighbors crying out for relief. We talk about justice. But the prison industrial complex reveals cracks in the walls of our dehumanizing carceral state. In our society, many declare it their right to kill children in the womb. At the same time that a majority of Americans remain supportive of euthanizing the elderly. And when Christians have gone along with this line of thinking, we have caused the door of the kingdom to stick for our neighbors. Now I want you to understand something. This is not finger wagging or looking down my nose at our neighbors. It's a lament. It's a lament and an expression of an urgent longing that we as God's people would return in full strength to our ethic of life. That we would be a people that upholds God's ethic of life in a culture of death. Here's the deal. We are not better than our neighbors, but we have been taught better by our God. 
The wisdom of Christ far exceeds the wisdom of this world. And our neighbors deserve better from us as those who claim to follow the God of love and life. We need not give in to despair through the inhumanity of our age and social structures. And we cannot give in to despair and hopelessness. Today, we continue through our series on the Ten Commandments, God's rule of love, by exploring the Sixth Commandment. You shall not murder. And we're going to approach this text through two points, where we consider the context of our calling and the clarity of our calling. The context of our calling and the clarity of our calling. So let's look at the first point. The context of our calling as it specifically relates to the sixth commandment. We have to always remember context when it comes to how we read and interpret scripture. Any of your fellow members in this community who have been coming to the essentials class can break that down for you if you need some help. Okay? Or you could come yourself. Let's think about the broader context of what's happening here. When we begin to think about the context, a forceful argument begins to emerge as it relates to this particular commandment. Because Exodus is connected to the book of Genesis. It's one narrative. And in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God proves himself to be the Lord of life. He not only creates every living plant and animal, but the text of Genesis specifically says that the Lord spoke this word, let the earth swarm with life. And then after calling animals and plants to swarm with life, the Lord breathes life into Adam and creates Eve out of his rib and calls these image bearers to be fruitful, to multiply, and to serve as caregivers for the abundant swarms of plant and animal life. Right from the very beginning of God's story, life is bursting off of the pages. And when the fall occurs in Genesis 3, it's not just a gentle descent into that dark night. It's a stunning collapse of moral order, abundance, and flourishing. The principle of life has been compromised. Death spreads like wildfire to the degree that in the very next chapter, Genesis 4, sin already escalates to fratricide. Brother killing brother. The earth was swarming with life, but after the fall, the world is swarming with death. And yet we see a God who is committed to bringing life in the midst of death. To return that swarming, abundant life as the story unfolds. These themes are picked up as the story continues in the book of Exodus. If you remember back to our Exodus series, we noted that in the Hebrew text, the, the, the grammatical structure at the very first word of Exodus reveals that it's a continuation of the previous story. And in Exodus 1, we see that the Lord causes Israel to be fruitful and to multiply in a cultural context of death. 
they are being oppressed, but by God they are being blessed. And that oppression cannot overcome the blessing of God. So they're fruitful. They multiply. They start to swarm. It's like a recapitulation of Genesis 1 and 2. But Pharaoh acts as an embodiment of death. And death continues to assert itself in the story. What happens is that Pharaoh acts as an embodiment of death in the Exodus narrative. He works against life by unjustly criminalizing Israel with his words. The first thing he does is he uses his words and it puts Israel in jeopardy. He frames them as a criminal presence. He works against life by enslaving the Israelites. He works against life by ruthlessly oppressing the Israelites. He works against life by inviting the Egyptians to threaten the swarming life of Israel by throwing their baby boys into the Nile River and terrorizing the lives of God's people. But look at what the Lord of life does. Israel remembered all that. You know what we call that today? Trauma. There was no evading that trauma. How many of God's people were at the foot of Mount Sinai remembering when their baby boy was thrown into the Nile? Look at what the Lord of life does. Not only does he judge and soundly defeat Pharaoh and his political military machine, but he intentionally calls Israel to Sinai to foster a culture of life in a context of death. Israel was called to be the resistance, to be witnesses to life in God amidst the death and devastation. This is an aspect of what theologians call the antithesis. Somebody say the antithesis. Check it out. God's rule of love came into a significant and necessary conflict with the prevailing ideas and practices of their surrounding culture. It was a necessary conflict. Their contemporaries would have thought them to be strange, to be a threat to popular ideals. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter. It was at this point that God's people had to be against the world for the life of the world. That's what we mean by talking of the antithesis. You can't resolve all of the conflict that we have with the world. There's no middle ground. You're for the Lord or against the Lord, according to the scriptures. The antithesis speaks to the necessary conflict and the necessary counterculture of the church with respect to the world. But again, we're against the world for the life of the world. Very similar to the way that we are against the worst impulses in our children for the life of our children. There are times where we must oppose For their own good. You see, the world was killing itself, and God's people were to introduce a countercultural ethic of life for the good of their neighbors, even when their neighbors didn't see it that way. And we find ourselves in a similar situation. And this is why we have been giving this sustained attention to the Ten Commandments, to God's rule of love. Many Christians today have been more discipled by the world and its ethic than by the Lord and his ethic. 
And this is important, not just because the Lord says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Not just because of the importance for our own sanctification, but also because our ethical framework, our moral system is essential for our mission. And sometimes we think we're being winsome when really we're just being cowards. Cowards who abandon mission out of fear or self-preservation or needing the approval of others. How can we commend life in Christ to our neighbors if we are not consistently and courageously committed to seeking life for image bearers in the womb, image bearers on the street, image bearers in our schools, image bearers in prison, image bearers in wheelchairs, image bearers in nursing homes, image bearers across the aisle, image bearers in any state or station of life? How can we be consistent? We can't. And I want you to understand something, because I know there's someone out there, maybe someones out there, who feel their hackles raising right now. I want you to understand something. Every Christian community or denomination that has capitulated to culture on historic ethical positions of the Christian faith for the sake of being more relatable has demonstrably initiated its own death because it has departed from God's mission and Christian epistemology. You know what epistemology is? How you know what you know. Even a cursory perusal of modern church history empirically proves this statement. And if you want to know what this church would look like if we surrendered our ethic under the hard parts of the, the historic Christian ethic. If you want to know what this church would look like if we surrendered the hard parts of our historic Christian ethic, you don't have to guess. Just look at all the church buildings in American cities being turned into condos. Look at the beliefs and the ethics of the denominations that are having to liquidate property for cash because they're hemorrhaging members and attenders. This is what happens when a church loses its saltiness and obscures its moral and ethical light. The, the world has no need for a church that looks, thinks, and acts just like the world. That uncritically parrots the slogans of the world. When the church concedes its ethic, it has an appearance of godliness that lacks its power, as the Apostle Paul puts it. In these situations, the world eventually says, why do I need the church or the Christian faith when, can I, when I can have the same exact thing out in the world without the religious hassle? In this way, Christian communities that surrender our ethic heal the wound lightly, as the prophets say offering a false security to those who want to put a divine stamp on what they already want to do. This is how author Wilbur Rees described such Christianity in 1971. This is what he says. Quote, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. 
I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. That's how Wilbur Rees captures a Christianity that wants to go cafeteria style. And to pick and choose based upon popularity of ideas or how much or how little drama it will create for us in our relationship to neighbors who disagree with us strongly. What I want us to see in this first point is that the context of our calling is a context of death. It's a context of opposition. But nevertheless, there is clarity to our call, which brings us to the second point, the clarity of our calling. Our passage from 1 John this morning provides a clear articulation of our calling. If we are going to love our neighbors, then we must be about the business of life as articulated in Scripture. Take a look at the text of 1 John with me. The very first verse of our passage, verse 11, tells us that this is what we have heard from the beginning. This is nothing new. This has always been the Christian faith. This has always been the Christian ethic. And in verse 12, John underlines his points by contrasting opposites. That's something that John does all through his letters and even in his gospel. Christians are not to be like Cain, the first attested murderer in Scripture, who drew his inspiration from the evil one, the devil. The story of Cain shows what failure to love one's brother can lead to, sheer murder. And, and John says that all hatred is embryonic murder. It hits the sins forbidden and the duties required. By referencing the Cain and Abel story, John is also referencing the central message of that passage, that we are our brother and sister's keeper. We are our brother and sister's keeper. And in verse 13, we see there is also an expectation set for God's people that we will be hated by the world. How much of our energy and our mental bandwidth is spent in trying to avoid the very hatred that Jesus says faithfulness will bring? Sometimes the only way you can avoid the conflict and the hatred is by compromising faithfulness. Because Jesus says, don't be surprised. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. And John is just echoing what Jesus said. This, this life of love, this, this ethic of life will indeed be a cause of hatred. It will bring us scorn in some respect. John says that we're not to be surprised at this or deterred by this. And in context, John is not only talking about people outside of the church, but also people within the church whose lack of love demonstrates they're not truly believers. In verse 14, John says that love is the proof that a person possesses eternal life. And I want to emphasize the teaching of the text, that spiritual life does not result from loving others. Loving others is the evidence, not the ground for eternal life. It's the proof. In John's framework here, his very stark black and white 
should invite sober reflection on our part. In verse 15, John echoes the words of Jesus himself from Matthew chapter 5. It's a blunt, black and white statement. Hatred is tantamount to murder. And the way we use our words with respect to others is often a way in which we find ourselves guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. Hatred is the wish that the other person was not there. It's the refusal to recognize their dignity and moral agency. It's effectively a longing that they might be dead. And this might sound exaggerated to us, but John warns us it's devilish behavior, literally devilish behavior. If a person would deprive another of life, that person clearly does not belong to the realm of life. That's the logic. How we treat the image of God says everything about the real state of our relationship to God. For example, imagine that I had a picture of my mom up here. And I took that picture and I spit on it. And I tore it. And I burned it. You would not conclude that I hate photographs. You would say that I have issues with my mom. It's the same logic as it relates to how we treat God's image. There is a deep symmetry between the way we treat other people and how we are related to God. You can't mistreat people. You can't undermine their vitality and their well-being. You can't lay back passively while they are languishing and claim to have a tight relationship with God. That's why pietism is faulty. The retreat into the me and Jesus spirituality. Because it leaves love on the table and it actually speaks to a compromise in your love for God. Author Becky Pippert said that Christians need to get out of the salt shaker and into the world. I like that. In verse 16, we see that from this awful picture of hatred and murder, John turns to consider the positive nature of love. John defines love by giving the primary example. This is how we know what love is in an age where people want to define love for themselves. Where they, where they just presuppose that everyone knows what love is or that love can just remain amorphous or user's choice, reader response, whatever you think love is, that's how you flow. John is saying there is a concrete definition that has been given to love for the Christian and it is embodied in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. We can observe that Jesus laid down his life for us and this is how we are to draw our understanding of love from the life of Christ. Love seeks the good of the other as defined and designed by the Lord of love and goodness. John's immediate point is that the self-giving involved in Jesus' death for our sake shows us in concentrated form the meaning of love and life. In Jesus, we see that love is prepared to meet the needs of others. In verse 17, John clarifies the life of love by offering a concrete example. A concrete that is all too often disregarded by God's people. 
Everybody loves love until they are called to love in hard places and at inconvenient times. Everyone's all about love until those points. What John has given us here is not an ideal waiting for some magical moment to be worked out. No, there's an immediacy to the opportunity that we have to live this life of love out. It's right before us. And we draw the conclusion from what John teaches here that if we have the means to meet a need and we show no mercy, we need to hear the word of John. How can the love of God be in such a person? So long as we have, while our neighbors have little to nothing, and we do nothing to help them, we are lacking in the love, which is essential evidence that we are truly children of God. Because what John is talking about here is a heart disposition. He's talking about a heart disposition. Do you see in the text, he says, anyone who closes his heart. In the language of the text, it's the language that was used of shutting the gate to a city so that nothing could get in. And what John is saying is when you shut your heart to the needs of your neighbor, when you shut your heart to the cries of your neighbor, to their plight, and you don't allow their circumstances, their hardships, their sorrows, or their losses to come through and touch you. You are closing your heart off to them, and it calls into question the nature of your relationship to the God of love. What we should understand is that heart without action is no good. An action with no heart is no good. What John is calling for here is action, heart in action, we should say. And that's the rule of love. We have to let this text work on us because too often we quickly try to hurry up and harmonize it. It can't, it can't mean that. It can't mean, like, well, grace, grace, grace. <laughs> the Bible's not in conflict with itself. This stark black and white word from John is meant to arrest us. And it's meant to invite us to sober self-reflection. To shake us out of presumption. You know, just because you're in church does not mean that you have life in Christ necessarily. Just, just like... It doesn't mean that if you're standing in a garage, you're automatically a car. Okay? We are given this sense from Scripture that we are always to be examining ourselves to make sure that we are standing in the faith, that we are trusting in Christ. It's not about, I, just, I trusted Jesus back in 1999. That's not it. It's what are you doing now? And how are you responding to his grace now? We shouldn't dismiss these kinds of texts, soften them, or reason them away. Let them work on you. In this text, I hope you can see that John reveals how we break the sixth commandment by commission and omission. It's our active use of words against others where we slander them or we drag their reputation into ill repute. We're going to get to the ninth commandment and that one buckle up, okay? <laughs> but how we use our words. John says and Jesus says, 
When we use our words against our brother or sister or our neighbor, it's murder. When we lash out in anger, when we rage against our neighbor, it's murder. This is, this is sin of commission. But the scary thing for those of us who are in here this morning is that we can kill our neighbors through sins of omission. Now, if anyone today felt like you were safe when we got to the sixth commandment, <laughs> I want you to know that you're not. <laughs> and I'm not. Because how many times have we omitted our obligation to support the life and flourishing of our neighbors where we pass them up and do not meet needs in the street or we excuse ourselves by saying that we're busy or we have a lot of work, which presumes that the busyness is an axiom that must not change and neighbors are secondary if we can get around to them. We all have failed to vigorously fight for the life and the flourishing of our neighbors. There is some neighbor that you have not been thinking about. There is some people group that you haven't considered in your neighborhood. There are houses on your block where you've never even spoken to the neighbors and they're languishing. And we could have done something about it. It's sins of commission and omission. These texts push us to take a hard look at the violence in our world and to look through that violence to its root in loveless hearts that break the sixth commandment. John is showing us that violence has become so commonplace to us in American culture that we have grown calloused to the malice and accustomed to murder. And so we're judged by these texts. They expose our indifference and our disobedience. Because this, this text, texts like these, they should lead us to the street, to the home, to the prison, to the playground, to the school, to the nursing home, to the workplace, to the crisis pregnancy center, to soup kitchens, wherever God's children find themselves in the midst of neighbors who are in need. But how do we live into this? Where do we get the motivation, the drive, the, the, the fortitude to live into this? It's not just a try harder message. It never is, really. It's always a connect the dots message. Connect the dots on what God has done for you in the gospel. Think about all that God has promised to be for you. It's that connection, that faith, that really drives this life. The antidote to taking the lives of our neighbors in anger is to take the life of Christ by faith. Take the life of Christ for your forgiveness. Take the life of Christ for your justification. Take the life of Christ for your peace with God. Take the life of Christ for your sanctification and your growth in grace. Take it for your endurance and the hope of justice. Take it for your comfort. Take it for your model and example. And you will become for your neighbors a giver of life rather than a taker of life. And the reference to Cain and Abel brings back even more good news to our minds. 
Because if you go back to Genesis 4, when Cain murders Abel, the blood of this righteous sufferer cries out to God for justice. Vindicate me, O Lord. But what we learn in the book of Hebrews is that the blood of another righteous sufferer calls out a better word on behalf of God's beloved. It calls out for pardon. It calls out for forgiveness and grace. It calls out for reconciliation. It calls out for hope and a future for God's people. It calls out for transformation and a new heaven and a new earth. Because his blood cries out over our lives in that way, it gives us a new resilience to pursue life and flourishing for our neighbors. Because that's what Jesus did for us. How can we receive that ministry of Christ for our life and flourishing and refuse to do the same for our neighbors? We were never meant to become a cul-de-sac of blessing. It was always meant to pass through us. Remember what God said to Abraham? You will be blessed so that you can be a blessing. And what is that blessing but flourishing of life? In every way and in every sphere. That's why we take issue at this church with the idea of just soul saving, right? Concern for the soul apart from the body. But we also take issue with a social gospel that's concerned for the body and does not address the soul. Neither of these are biblical. It's a holistic picture. What about your entire human existence did Jesus not address? Tell me. He addressed it all. And he will consummate it all. You're not going to be a disembodied spirit in glory. You are going to have a resurrected body, which is the ultimate evidence that Jesus cares about you, body and soul, material and immaterial. And so we must care for our neighbors in a similar way. Loving your neighbor looks like more than simply avoiding murder. It's respecting, protecting, and perfecting life. It is respecting, protecting, and perfecting life. It's respecting life. A recognition of the various image bearers around us that restrains our worst impulses. It's protecting life, proactive defense of the vulnerable, working against everything that works against life. And perfecting life, which is to say that we index our hearts to the resurrection and the hope of glory. So what does this mean for us? How does this work out? What are some things that we can do? Show up at a suffering neighbor's house with a meal. Check in on a friend battling with mental illness. Support local schools by tutoring kids who need literacy support. Make room in your home to partner with DC 127. Visit the elderly in one of our local facilities like Seabury right on 18th, right up the hill from Woodridge Library. Go serve at a local pregnancy resource center and let's cultivate thick community that can provide adequate support for women who have unplanned pregnancies. If we're going to be consistent, then we must match our words about life with deeds that prove we're about an ethic rather than political posturing. How else can you live into obedience to the sixth commandment? 
take care of your body. Take care of yourself. It's become somewhat of a joke, and I've been guilty of this myself, where we laugh off sloth as it relates to care for our bodies. Oh, yeah, we don't take care. We, we, we don't pay attention to what we eat. We do no physical exercise, and we scoff at the gift that God has given us with our bodies. You know what that is? That's breaking the sixth commandment. I want to commend to you that you look at the, the Westminster Standards, uh, particularly the Westminster Larger Catechism, as it expounds the sixth commandment. It's really good, and it's really thorough, and it's very challenging. It even talks about cheerfulness as an obligation of the sixth commandment. Because when we, when we fail to live into cheerfulness, we start a downward spiral of despair that compromises human life and leads toward suicide, which is also a breaking of the sixth commandment. There are so many ways that we fall short of living into this. But ultimately, we must be advocates for human flourishing, even in our work. We have to make something other than the bottom line our bottom line as Christians. We are the resurrection people. And that means that we must bear witness to the power of life over death. How can the resurrection people fail to be about life flourishing for all image bearers in every station? Utterly inconsistent with what we claim to be about. We're the resurrection people. We must bear witness to the power of life over death. And we have no need to fear or worry as we seek to uphold this ethic. Christ not only gave us life, he is our life. So let us rehumanize our neighbors. Let us rest in the reality of God's justice so we can let go of vengeance. Trust in the Lord's love and wisdom, being reminded that there is nobody in this world, not you, not me, not our neighbors, who is more loving than God. And everything he has given us in his word springs from his love and his knowledge of what causes us to flourish as his creatures. Trust in the Lord's love and wisdom and let's give love to our neighbors like we're made of this stuff. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.